Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. It is something else when the spokesperson for the National Security Council says, hey, don't talk about this thing. Pretty much ensures that people are going to talk about a thing. It's the Streisand effect, isn't it? It's the idea of saying, hey, don't you show where my house is. Don't show where I live. And next thing you know, well, everybody now wants to know where you live. That's actually why it's called the Streisand effect. Because when the EPA, I think it was them who took pictures of soil erosion on the coast of Malibu, got a photo of Barbara Streisand's home, Barbara Streisand complained. And she complained so much that people started looking up the photo to see her house. That's the Streisand effect. And when you have John Kirby saying, do not look into these documents, do not read these documents that were leaked by the Pentagon, you got to wonder what's in these documents. But we already know that the leak of these documents is even more damning than the story of the leaked documents themselves, although they create their own series of issues. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. Stephen Yates joins us right now. He's with the America First Policy Institute. I know you from your days at DCI Advisors. Of course, you worked uh, national security for former Vice President Dick Cheney in that uh, White House. Let's start with, well, either way you want to go about this. Do you want to start with what these documents actually said or or the depths of the leak themselves? You know what? I've answered my own question. What did these documents actually say? Well, there's a, a wide range of things. And so it's sort of like when the WikiLeaks and other kinds of things were coming out, there are little pieces all around the world that can bubble up and have some unintended consequences. But the white hot focus has been on what it said about the conflict with, between Russia and Ukraine and a disclosure of some communications with allies in the Middle East and other parts of the world. Uh, about what they're doing with Russia or what they what the U.S. government wants them to be doing with Ukraine. Basically, it's airing thoughts and playbooks and assessments. And perhaps some of the most damning uh, were slides that were attributed to the Joint Chiefs of Staff or some parts of the Pentagon that might suggest some key strategic weaknesses in the capabilities of the Ukrainian military. Uh, and Disclosure of that, if true, uh, could actually be quite an incentive for Russia to push harder, faster. And it's, of course, dispiriting to those who've been building up this notion that the that the Ukrainians are on the winning side and we just need to keep momentum going forward. And yeah. at odds with what the administration has said, which is the most damning thing. Right. That that, that you, you get this recognition that uh, we've been lied to. And that um, clearly there's a push to continue that lie for a purpose other than keeping Ukraine from falling into Russian hands. So there is that acknowledgement uh, of it. But the, the, the Russia-Ukraine part is only one part of what these documents had. These documents also engaged uh, details about conversations with South Korea and conversations with, with Israel. What did those conversations entail? Well, I haven't been able to dive into all of it just yet, but there's with the South Korea and with Israel, basically you get into what their relationships are with other countries of concern. uh, And there's sort of question marks about intentions and capabilities that undermine the concept of alliances. Uh, And so 
uh, you know, when you have anything that goes out in public that suggests that you're asking an ally to do something very controversial that they have not discussed with their public, uh, like what are they going to do to have weapons shipped to Ukraine, perhaps, and that other government, say Israel, has a delicate balance of its relations that it's trying to keep with Russia, Ukraine, and the free world, the United States included, uh, you're making life harder to be your friend. I mean, one of the most important anecdotes I was given in politics and policymaking at the outset was, don't make it hard for me to be your friend. And this disclosure basically is making it hard for our allies to be our allies. Talking to Stephen Yates, you can actually find out more about him at AmericaFirstPolicy.com, senior fellow and chair of the China Policy Initiative. But your history, your, your understanding of, of the scene on, on, on a world stage is, is why I, I come to you. These documents, the, the, these conversations, I should say, having this intel, that's not surprising that the United States would have the, this intel. The leak is what's damning here. The idea that once again, this isn't just about Trump. I was discussing this with Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army just yesterday. This isn't about Trump. This isn't about, oh, look at the leaks under him. This is about a, a Defense Department, a Pentagon, a an apparatus that clearly has safety issues because these documents weren't just laying about. This wasn't, you know, what was going on in Joe Biden's garage next to the Corvette. Stephen, this is these were documents taken out of a skip, a secure compartmentalized information facility. Is that true? Well, there's several layers of problems that we have in our intelligence and defense decision making processes. One is overclassification. Uh, and so when you have the entire universe classified, that means that everything is important. So nothing actually gets protected. Uh, another problem we have is too many people with security clearances who don't have a need to know because, you, you know, you might at some point want to make a trip. And, of course, the schedule for that trip is classified. So this Yahoo has a clearance. And then there's the added layer of tech support. There's the decision makers who need to have specialized information protected and communicated with them. And then there's the computer geeks who have to be able to make the communications world move. And they have access to everything. And they know how to pull together information in ways that the, the supposedly power and powerful and intelligent people at the top have no idea about. Uh, and so there's lots of areas of risk of exposure, lots of opportunity for people with agendas to get involved. Uh, and so that is one piece of this. But this there's all the earmarks of this not being an accident. Uh, and right. also the immediate reaction to suggest that some of this might have been doctored uh, is, is in some ways either disinformation from our national security leadership, which unfortunately we can't discount to say, whoa, 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 before you jump to too many conclusions, some of this is fake, but I, but I can't tell you which parts are fake. Uh, and then the other part of it is someone could have done this in a way that parts of it's fake because that's what you would do to tag information so that when it gets disclosed, you know where the leak happened because you doctor like all kinds of different versions of this. And then there's some kind of a tag in it that tells you well, now, this is the one you gave to Joe or Carol or so-and-so. Yeah, but now we're getting into, into the heavy, right? Talking to Stephen Yates, the America First Policy Institute, AmericaFirstPolicy.com. Uh, 
Let's just roll back just for a second. Yes, there is the the conversation that you could leak things to see who's talking about the thing that you leaked and it was purposefully the misinformation so you know who the leaker is. Absolutely. We parents have been doing that to kids for for years. We're not surprised by this one. But there's really very little doubt. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go on a limb and say there's no doubt. Somebody took photos. Somebody in a skiff took this information, Stephen, and decided to disseminate it. That's treasonous. True or false? No, it's just a fact. I mean, and when you get a security clearance, even a low-level one, there is that training and warning and awareness. Uh, And as you get higher in security levels and into special compartments, it's even more dire. And you sign documents that basically commit you legally to protect that information in that way. And disclosing even a little bit of it, even storing it improperly, can result in dire consequences. That's kind of the origins of all these stories about top-level decision makers from presidents and cabinet secretaries and members of Congress sort of dropping documents here or there and getting picked up, even inconsequential documents being a story, because ordinary schmoes like me in the past, if we did any of this stuff, you have massive, massive legal and professional consequences. I want to talk about those massive, massive legal and professional consequences. There's the there's the idea of what this does to us foreign policy-wise. And another leak is just other nations saying, can I really trust talking to these people? This is a level of incompetence that is is kind of hard to, to, to comprehend. But I think the, the, the first part is you're the Pentagon. You are Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of, of Defense. You are President Biden. What are your first three steps here? What are you advising them to do in, in regards to this situation? How do you fix this? Yeah, well, there aren't good ways or quick ways, unfortunately, because the Pentagon and our national security decision-making entities are a behemoth. Uh, there's so many people, so many parts of it, so much information. So you kind of have, in some ways have to go back to basics. What are truly the most damaging things that, if disclosed, could fundamentally hurt, uh, undermine, otherwise complicate America's national security-related actions, especially defense operations? Uh, and, uh, my, and my assertion would be that too many things have been included in that category so that you're chasing too much so you're protecting nothing the way it needs to be protected. Uh, and so when it comes to sensitive conversations that a real leader is having with other real leaders around the world, that actually needs significant protection because we need people to have candid, even in some ways, salty and crazy conversations with each other to allow for influence and de-escalation or other kinds of things so we don't have to send our young men and women to war. Uh, and so we need that kind of stuff protected. But the the vast overexpansion of what is truly sensitive truly must be protected has to be has to be dealt with in a serious way uh, many have talked about it few have done it but when it comes to war planning we have many different kinds of meetings where people are dusting off war plans some of them are at middle and low levels some of them will be out in the combatant commands or regional commands any of these areas where we're talking about what would we do or what are we doing and how do we really assess an ally or an adversary that's pretty sensitive stuff. It's not academic. And even if we're just having overpaid people pontificate 
It's damaging if it's disclosed, even if there's no basis in reality for what they say. And every war, every conflict, every crisis we approach, we have people in our system who are wrong. But we need that to happen because for every 10 people you ask for, you get 12 opinions. And leaders have to sort through that and make their own choice. So that part of decision making has to be protected better. The Pentagon clearly failed in this instance, and it hit many different areas where we have real live military contingencies. I want to push back on that for a second. You just said that the Pentagon failed. I want to argue that somebody purposefully tried to hurt the country. I go about it in a, in a much different way. If, if, if we argue that the Pentagon failed, we, you could be discussing the fact that, yes, based on the conversations about the documents at, at President Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago, the documents with Joe Biden, we overclassify everything for the purposes of overclassifying so we can prevent others from seeing things. And therefore, if everything's classified, nothing's classified. If everything's important, nothing's important. I, I don't I don't disagree with you there. But if you tell me that the Pentagon failed in this, you're talking about a process. And I question whether or not we're talking about a process or a person. A person failed in this. And the question is, how do you find them? And then do you try them for treason? Yeah. Well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive situations because if something is truly dire that could lead to massive national security consequences for our country, potential life and death consequences for our military or those of our allies, then our systems have to protect against even the one in a million chance of something getting uh, getting disclosed. Now, I, I think you're correct. In this instance, there's at least one individual who should not have done what they did uh, and then uh, that that when you do that, you could be in a position of saying, look, the United States has been lying to the public uh, and we need kind of a whistleblower kind of thing to disclose. But in so doing, you are accepting that this is so dire for our country that I'm willing to bear the consequences of doing this. I'm willing to sacrifice myself in order to save many, many more other people. And this is the dilemma that you have, large or small, when you work in an appointed position in an administration. You can either resign in protest, you lose your posh position, Mm -hmm. and you risk your future career because you think something is so important that you have to push from the outside. That is what has to happen. And when you do it, you must accept those consequences. And the the consequences for this kind of stuff are, are usually a minimum of life in prison if it's really that top, top level stuff that implicates war plans or ongoing military operations. You don't, you don't, you don't uh, see there, me. Uh, obviously not your stuff. You don't see me getting upset about that. You don't see me getting upset about life in prison. I think there's a, a thing that happens when you're on, let's say, my side of the political aisle, your side of the political aisle. You're like, oh, this is Biden. Oh, look at what this is really about us as a nation. The danger happens to all of us. Is there a take that you have seen? You've been talking to people uh, uh, short term and, and long term about what these leaks have done. Is there Are there specific nations? I brought up Israel. I brought up South Korea. Uh, we should discuss uh, the view of China on these things. Are there specific nations that will take real offense to these things? And are there nations that we have given an advantage to off the quick because of these leaks? Well, in the former category, I think a lot of our friendly allies, uh, unfortunately, have been tripped up by past leaks 
and other kinds of malign rumors and off the record conversations and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, Israel has had leaders that have been through the rough and tumble of dealing with the, the behemoth that is the United States, the shifting political sands. So have a lot of our major allies in the Middle East. In Europe, I question whether some of our allies are actually friendly. I mean, if you look at what Macron just did in going to China, uh, I mean, that that was not an issue of disclosure. That was open talk of betrayal and appeasement, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, when you're t- looking at Asia, I, I, a lot of our allies there ha- have been habitually downplayed. Uh, and so uh, I don't think that they are more disadvantaged. The real problem is that second category you talked about of big malign powers who will with glee see opportunity and push ahead. Mm-hmm. And I think the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing is number one on that list. Uh, formerly known as Rocket Man, Kim Jong-un, probably wonders whether, oh, there's an opportunity here and there's no reason for me to pull back from provocation. And then you look at Tehran uh, and of course, I think Putin sees somewhat of a green light in this. So really, it's, it's electrification of this axis of do-no-gooders that's the biggest consequence. We should, uh, sometime in the very near future, discuss Macron, the president of France, his visit to China, because the fallout is starting to become very apparent that this was uh, an appeasement in, in, the, in, the, in the vein of Chamberlain uh, type of thing where he advocated for Europe's neutrality. Senator Marco Rubio, I think, had one of the better quick responses to that, but that's going to be a conversation for uh, another day. Stephen uh, Yates, he is with the America First Policy Institute, senior fellow and chair of the China Policy Initiative. Always appreciate you taking the time to be with us. There is much more to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So if you happen to be in Indiana, which many of you are, in Brownsburg, we're doing a fundraiser on Saturday. Hope you'll join us. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. There's a group called Brownsburg Blessing Boxes, which does food for people in need. And more and more, I mean, we talk about this economy all the time. People do not recognize who aren't in a bad space exactly how bad things are getting for people who are in a bad space. We, uh, with with my Cigar and Bourbon show, Eat, Drink, Smoke, eatdrinksmokeshow.com, we team up with a group called Premier Arms, a great sponsor of my morning show, premierarms.com, and we raise money for Brownsburg Blessing Boxes. So we've got a live event. It'll be a live Eat, Drink, Smoke on Saturday. That's April 15th, which normally is tax day, but it got moved to the 18th this year. So uh, we've got that going on live, and then Guy Relford, who hosts the Gun Guy Show, second Amendment attorney, crazy, crazy knowledgeable. He will be doing his show. So it's from 3 to 7 p.m. And then it's a $100 donation. You get a chance to win some insane prize packs with with custom-made firearms and and cigars curated by by me and bench-made knives citizen watch uh because premier arms and pa jewelers is a uh, authorized dealer of citizen it's an incredible time food trucks are are out there allenzer jr a two-time indy 500 winner winner is going to be out there so come join us on saturday and and the world is crazy you don't have to be you can do some good so come do some good uh that is brownsburg premier arms 
Farms, 3754 South Green Street. In Brownsburg, 3754 South Green Street, 3 to 7 p.m. Saturday. I'll be there. Fingers Malloy will be there. Guy Relford will be there. And you can win some absolutely incredible, incredible stuff. Some great opportunities. Uh, great opportunities, uh, I, I should say, exist to get some really cool stuff. I think that's the legal way to say it. I'm trying to say it in the proper way. Brownsburg, Saturday from 3 to 7 p.m., Premier Arms on Green Street. See you there. Get more information, premierarms.com. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. So the question about what's happening in Israel uh, is not one that gets answered easily because it requires kind of a taking a step back to be able to take a step forward. What we're told about Israel is very, very different than the reality of what's happening in Israel. How people utilize Israel for their political purposes is very, very different from what's happening in Israel. But some things, well, the song remains the same. In some ways and in some places, there is just no question that Israel is once again under attack. Israel has been facing attacks. Israel has been facing damaging, violent attacks. And those are, we're talking about, with weapons, not just the political attacks it faces from without Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, phone number 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669, 833-GOT-TONY. Let me bring in right now Dr. Daniel Ashheim. There he is right there. He is, and I want to read it, make sure I get it right, Deputy Counsel General at the Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest, uh, lived in Israel uh, his, his life long, a Jerusalem native, has worked in a series of both governmental and private uh, organizations and uh, sits now in Chicago where he uh, serves Israel and uh, representing it to the Midwest. I, I appreciate you're here, that you're here and, and, and taking the time. I want to start with with a basic because it seems to me that any time that Benjamin Netanyahu is prime minister we see more anger, if you will, on the television screens towards Israel. There was a a while there where conversations about Israel were much more in the quiet. But in this case, Benjamin Netanyahu's return as uh, prime minister has brought with it something he campaigned on, something he said he was going to do, which was this idea of reform of the judiciary. And the reform of the judiciary has led to protests across Israel. Talk to me about those protests. Were those protests or are those protests violent? And what is the both sides of the conversation there regarding judicial reform? So first of all, thank you, Tony, for having me. I'm always glad to be on your show. Hopefully next time we'll be here for better things than the reality, the grim reality we are facing these days with terrorism hitting Israel once again. But to talk about the broader context of what we are seeing today as the judicial reforms, demonstrations for, demonstrations against, one needs to understand this is the essence of democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom to demonstrate when you like what the government does, when you don't like what the government does. So what we are seeing are, are viewpoints that are different between those who think the better way in order to improve democracy is via judicial reforms, that are necessary, when the opposition is claiming that these reforms are not what's necessary in order to improve democracy, but on the contrary. And we are seeing a vibrant discussion amongst all over Israeli society. 
with the demonstrators demonstrating on Saturday nights all around Israel against the government action, a few of the demonstrations throughout the week for the government who are, who are pursuing these reforms. And this is causing sometimes our neighbors to miscalculate the situation. And what I want to make clear here is that these demonstrations, these protests, are a strength of Israel and a strength of Israeli democracy. And when our neighbors, our distant ones, Iran, or the closer ones, interpret it as weakness of Israel and try and strike us, the answer to them is, we will prevail and we will win. So don't try us. Don't try us. The fact that we are debating internal issues does not make us weaker, but stronger. Now, I, I never mind that kind of, of talk. I never mind the idea that you have to remind people just because we're having a conversation, you know, he ain't heavy, he's my brother, is the expression kind of uh, that, that, it, that it goes along with uh, Daniel talking to Dr. Daniel Ashheim, uh, Deputy Consul General uh, for the Consul General of Israel to the Midwest. Uh, but let's talk about these judicial reforms. The argument that Netanyahu is, is, is making is that the Supreme Court has a power that it shouldn't have, um, especially if you talk about, for example, the idea of being able to say no to legislation or no to a law based on the concept of reasonableness. Uh, what the Supreme Court and what many others are saying is that what Netanyahu's trying to do is basically a rewrite of how Israelis see the judiciary, and this is too much too far. How would you categorize it all? So this is a very complex issue because Israel, as opposed to the United States, we don't have an official constitution, but we have a constitution which was built on the Declaration of Independence and then later different rules that were established and different legislation and also ruling of the Supreme Court. Nevertheless, this has never been granted officially the, the power of the Supreme Court of any judiciary things. So what has happened in previous years is the power of certain institutions in Israel got power, and the government is claiming that the Supreme Court got power that they were never granted to overrule against laws that they think are illegal. And at the same time, the opposition is claiming because we don't have a constitution, and therefore the Supreme Court needs to protect human rights. So both sides have claims that in order to improve democracy, one has to do reforms. So the government is claiming that these reforms are necessary in order to bring back the power to the people who vote. And they say because the judges are not elected by the people or their politicians directly, therefore they sometimes don't reflect the general public who see different things. Now, hold so on a second, Daniel. I'm going to interrupt you really quick. This was Prime Minister Netanyahu on this exact subject. Right now, you have a situation where 15 unelected uh, members of the Supreme Court effectively govern Israel. They can decide things that affect our military, our economy, our foreign relations, our battle with terrorism. Is that right? Is that democratic? No, it's not democratic. You want to correct it. You don't say that those other democracies are somehow tainted, are somehow not democratic, because they've, uh, they have a better balance of power. So that, that is how Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, discusses it. The people who are opposed to that reform, what, uh, to, to a level of specificity, uh, do they bring an argument that is emotional or do they bring an argument that is grounded in some level of basis? 
I think neither, neither sides here are only emotional, only rational. I think we're talking about a combination. Both sides here, those who are supportive and those who are opposing it, both are serious patriots of the state of Israel. Both sides want a better future for the state of Israel. Both sides want to live together in order to improve democracy in Israel. How this is, this is what the debate is about. So what will make a stronger democracy whether it's going to be a different balance of power between the different institutions, and every side sees it differently. And I would claim that emotions is not the most important part here because both sides have rational, rational debates about the different causes, and this is together with academics on both sides, and hopefully what we are seeing now in the president's house is a strong, serious, comprehensive conversations between representatives of both the government, the coalition, and the opposition, with legal experts from both sides to resolve and find consensus about these topics, because most of the Israeli public agrees that certain reforms should be done. Which reforms should be done? There is a big conversation between the both sides on, but everyone agrees that we have to be coming out of this crisis stronger, more united, and to ensure the next 75 years of Israel is a strong, united nation. Talking to uh, Deputy Consul General uh, Dr. Daniel Ashheim, uh, let's bring it over to uh, this the, the the terrorism conversation, which unfortunately uh, never ever goes o- away. Of course, there were some attacks uh, over uh, Passover over those first uh, couple days. Of course, the days of the Seder, and uh, there was a response from Israel. This is uh, the words of Richard Haas, uh, Council of Foreign Relations on MSNBC. I'd like for you to react to this. No, Andrew, two reactions. One is I think it was a mind-numbingly just stupid, I, I don't know any other word for it, sorry to be so blunt, decision to send Israeli uh, forces into one of the holiest shrines of, uh, of Islam because people were piling rocks and fireworks. Really? The bar for Israeli entry into an Islamic holy site ought to be sky high. This wasn't even close to it. And if if the Israelis want to undermine the Abraham Accords, want to make it impossible for Saudi Arabia to ever move towards peace with Israel, they want to start another intifada, there's no better way to do it than we've just seen. This just isn't warranted. My own sense more broadly is the Israeli government is probably looking to go beyond, to find some kind of a compromise on the judicial reform issue, maybe something on that, and maybe compensating people on the far right who aren't happy with any compromise with a tougher policy towards the Palestinians. But if this is an example of it, it is really counterproductive. It's Israel that's starting an intifada. It's just rocks and fireworks. Um, It is Israel as the instigator. You're used to this kind of talk, but how do you respond to it? And could you break down for us what took place in Israel uh, over uh, just before last weekend, the response and what the Israeli response will be going forward? Let me try and make it simple. It's never a simple situation in Israel. It's always complex. The Middle East is a complicated and complex place. But here we see an organized incitement hatred attack led by Hamas, organized and planned by Iran, in order to destabilize the region and have conversations as such as we're having now, instead of discussing about the holy month of Ramadan, holy Easter, holy Passover, this is very unique that the three most important holidays are at the same time in the year. 
And instead of that, we saw an organized campaign of terrorism throughout the region, on the Judea and Samaria, on the Gaza Strip, missiles shot at civilians. From Lebanon, 34 missiles shot from by Palestinian terrorists from Lebanon to Israel. From Syria, now this is an attack that's not coming out of the blue. Why am I saying this? Because in the beginning of the Ramadan period, in the Dome of the Rock, an area which is holy both for Muslims and for Jews, but Jews are not allowed to pray there. They're only allowed to visit in very small quarters. Muslims are praying there. Israel does everything to guarantee freedom of worship for any, any religion. And in the beginning, we had 150,000 Palestinians praying there, Muslims praying in their holy month of Ramadan. Israel enabled Palestinians to come from, from Judea and Samaria, from other areas to come and pray there peacefully, and it went peacefully. What happened later, and this is similar to only, unfortunately, the last time we spoke was in 2021, in May, and very similar. You see the same patterns. Hamas did not like the fact that people are just coming to pray and practice their religion, but to make incitement and terrorism against Israel. And they called for it very clearly. They sat in Lebanon and called for terrorism against Israel. And groups of a few hundred young, usually young people, who are going there to promote provocation, taking stones, taking fireworks, not to celebrate, but to shoot at Israeli police who are in the back, protecting also Jewish people who are in the Western world, just beneath that point, and also protecting Muslims who are coming to pray there. And these provocations are, called, are bringing more and more incitement and terrorism. Just today, we buried another, a mother who lost her two daughters in a terrorist act by a Palestinian terrorists coming and shooting their car, not only shooting their car, after shooting, coming out of the vehicle to make sure they're dead and shooting them again. And then the day before, we had the disarming, even the same day, we had an Italian tourist, a lawyer, who walked on the Tel Aviv promenade. He was run over by another terrorist. And this is promoted, and this is funded, and this is led in an international campaign in order to destabilize the, the region. And this is a shame. This is a shame. It's a tragedy. Instead of sitting and celebrating the holidays together, peace, prosperity, and holiness, this is the exact opposite. When you see people discussing this, well, if Israel would just do this, Israel would just uh, do that, uh, everyone then goes to, well, we have to get to this two-state solution. Is it Israel's policy under Netanyahu to try and achieve a two-state solution, or is it the policy to achieve a standard of peace, period? Like, is, and is there a difference between the two? Look, in the past, the solution that was, was, was led by several governments was discussing the two-state solution. The Palestinians were offered from the 90s to the 2000s, late 2000s, various compromises based on the two-state solution, where 99% of their claims were answered. They refused to sign these agreements, claiming it's not enough. And they were never willing to end the conflict. Even when most of their things were addressed, they were not willing to send, sign a letter saying end of claims. And this is the biggest tragedy, first and foremost, for the Palestinian people. In, instead of sitting together today in a sovereign country, this is the situation they brought. And unfortunately, the Palestinian leadership is not willing to sit in the negotiation table with Israel. And you see, when the Abraham Accords country signed with us historic peace agreements, they did not come and say, we will not sit with you and discuss. 
And the Palestinians, unfortunately, are leading a campaign against Israel instead of working with Israel. Now, what the solution is today officially, the Israeli side has, has the will in order to maintain a better life for the Palestinians on the ground, whether in economic status, whether with the human rights or anything else, we want to improve their lives. The Palestinian side is not willing for any kind of compromise. So the two-state solution at this stage is not relevant. And of course, there's not always agreements within the Israeli political parties on what should be the solution. In the previous government, we had one, one party for the two-state solution, the other one against. In this current constellation in Israel, the two-state solution is not something that is brought to the table. But it doesn't change the fact that Israel would like to sit in the negotiation table with the Palestinians to reach historic compromises and settlements. Daniel Ashheim, Deputy Consul General, Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. And just like that, our long national nightmare is over. Yes! 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 Congress passed the legislation to end the COVID emergency. Joe Biden signed it, and there's no more COVID emergency. You know, that's it. It's over. And like that, he's gone. There it is. Just like that, just like Kaiser Soze. It's uh, it's all done. Uh, look, uh, signing a piece of paper doesn't stop a virus from being real. But signing a piece of paper and the legislation put forth does show that we're willing to put an end to things. There's actually a positive here. Yes, it could all be window dressing because this is a government that has clearly shown itself to be willing to lock people down and harm people if they feel they can get away with it. We can't let them get away with it. But putting an end to it, signing it, there is something there that I can, symbolic, but maybe something that the nation can build on. I, I, I would love for that to be the case. Who knows? Maybe I'm just naive, people. Maybe that's, maybe that's it. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com, TonyCats.locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.